Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. If you followed my reporting, if you followed the gray zone, then you will be very familiar with the OPCW's Syria cover-up scandal. Uh, this refers to the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the world's top chemical weapons watchdog, doctoring and censoring its own findings into an alleged chemical attack in Douma, Syria. And when this alleged attack happened, the U.S., Britain, and France accused the Syrian government of dropping chemical weapons on Douma and bomb Syria. And later on, the OPCW put out a report that aligned with the US, UK, and France's claims. But then we got a series of leaks showing that the actual team that went to Syria for this probe reached a much different conclusion, but their findings were doctored and censored. And we've done a lot of reporting on this based on leaked documents as more and more material continues to come out. Now, if you've also followed the story, you will know there's been a huge effort to suppress any accountability. The OPCW has refused to meet with the dissenting inspectors, has refused to address the documented acts of suppression and censorship of the Duma team's findings. And meanwhile, the US, UK, and France have led efforts at the UN to prevent any accountability, including blocking the testimony of the OPCW's first director general, Jose Bustani, who wanted to speak out in support of the whistleblowers and in support of accountability for the Duma cover-up, which they challenged. Well, now we have a new report that offers the most comprehensive look at the Duma cover-up to date. It's put out by a group called the Berlin Group 21, or known as BG21. It's headed by Jose Bustani, who is the former director general of the OPCW, Professor Richard Falk, who is a professor emeritus of law at Princeton, Hans von Sponek, who is a former UN Assistant Secretary General and former UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Iraq, and also Dr. Piers Robinson, who is an academic, a former chair in politics, society, and journalism at the University of Sheffield, and now co-director of the Organization for Propaganda Studies. And they have just put out a brand new report that goes through in extensive detail how the OPCW investigation into Duma was compromised, how it was censored, and what should be done about it. And this group is calling still on the OPCW to address the cover-up and to stop suppressing accountability, given the fact that the censorship of this probe is uncontested, as everybody now knows. So to discuss this new report and the ongoing campaign for accountability over the Duma cover-up, I'm joined today by Dr. Robinson and by Hans von Sponek. Hans von Sponek and Piers Robinson, thanks so much for joining me. Piers, let me start with you. For people who are not familiar, give us an overview of what this new document is, this new report from the Berlin Group 21. Okay, All right. The Berlin Group 21 review of the Duma investigation is, is a review which was initiated by two members of the European Parliament, uh, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly. And the purposes of it were to pull together all of the information that's now available in the public domain regarding the OPCW's fact-finding mission investigation of the alleged chemical weapons attack in Douma. And as, as you're aware, and as many of your viewers know, uh, over the last five years, a considerable amount of information has emerged into the public domain, documents, but also effectively testimony from senior inspectors involved in the investigation, which highlighted the manipulation of that report. 
And this has become very controversial, obviously, because it's in the context of the Syrian chemical weapons issue and narrative, which has been in place for a long time. And the, the, the leaks and the testimony which has emerged essentially demonstrated that there was yeah, manipulation of, of the evidence, which we'll get into later on. But the BG21 review really is it's an act in pulling together all of the material that we have, pulling it into a coherent, uh, authoritative and detailed analysis of essentially the procedural flaws which we have identified but also the scientific flaws, uh, which you can track across uh, the uh, various reports the OPCW have issued, and which relate to the issues raised by uh, people from within the OPCW regarding what had gone wrong. So it's a pulling together of all of that. It's now been submitted to all of the state's parties back in May. Uh, the Brazilian government has also raised the issue at the UN Security Council or raised the issues um, identified the Berlin Group 21 report. And the objective of it ultimately is to try to ensure that there is due recognition and accountability um, with respect to the, the scientific and procedural flaws which have been identified. Um, this is a, a major miscarriage, as it were, which has occurred. And you know, we, we hope that in time, this will, this information at least, this detailed information pulled together, will um, really put both the OPCW on the spot, but also encourage other governments to actually properly engage this issue. And when it comes to the scientific inconsistencies and deceptions that you document in your report, and by the way, this report is comprehensive to me. It's by far the most comprehensive look at the Duma cover-up to date. Very, very detailed. When you look at the all the fraud that took place, and there's so much of it, but uh, for people who might not even have heard of the story yet or who are not familiar with the basic details, what stands out to you as the most glaring and unresolved acts of censorship and deception in how the OPCW handled its own findings in Duma? Sure. I, the, the review breaks um, the issues into procedural flaws and, and then scientific flaws. But, and there are some standout issues uh, in terms of the procedural flaws. Uh, one of the most striking and obvious instances where there's been malpractice on the part of the OPCW is that there was an initial report that was drafted by the Duma team into the incident. And this report, as we now know, because it's available publicly after it was uh, passed to WikiLeaks, actually set out a, a series of significant inconsistencies and issues in the, in the evidence and really finished the report finished off with a very open, well, an attack might have occurred or something else might have happened and, and there needs to be further investigation. Now, that very objective, balanced and accurate uh, in, interim report or initial interim report was remarkably you know, signed off by the Duma inspectors, by the FFM team. And then at the last minute, unknown to that team, it was substituted with an alternative report, which stripped out all of the questions and issues which have been raised. And for anyone reading that, what we've termed as the redacted report, anyone reading that would have been left with the impression that the OPCW FFM had pretty much identified a chemical chlorine attack had occurred, as alleged, and, um, and it was the Syrian government behind it. 
And you know, that's a remarkable example of one could describe as scientific fraud as well as procedural flaw. Um, that you take a report, you substitute it with another one without telling the team. And of course, that was only caught at the last minute by one the OPCW FFM inspector, Brendan Whelan, who had uh, been an overall charge of drafting the initial report. He identified that it had actually been switched, and, and that was the start of the internal protest within the OPCW uh, challenging what was going on. So that's a pretty remarkable standout issue. I, I think the other broad procedural uh, issue is is really this systematic sidelining of the team who had deployed to Duma. Because of course, and all this gets into slight complexity, but there were two, two elements of the Duma fact-finding mission. One was a team who deployed to Duma in Syria, and the other team deployed to Turkey in order to um, uh, interview witnesses. And the team who are actually on the ground in Duma were essentially sidelined throughout and continue to be sidelined. And again, from a, from a scientific or, or research point of view, this is an untenable practice where you're actually sidelining and excluding um, experts who have knowledge on the ground and so on. So that's, that, that's a standout procedural flaw. In terms of the scientific issues, just very broadly, and we do use the term censorship in the title of the BG21 report, and as well as the term manipulation. But broadly speaking, uh, you know, there are four areas. There's the issue of, of how the 43 civilians died and the toxico toxicological evidence in relation to that. And what we see across the um, reports issued by the OPCW is a suppression of the original toxicology assessment, which was conducted with external experts, which concluded that the civilians at Duma in what's known as Location 2 were not, in fact, killed by chlorine gas. And that, of course, is the essential, the primary allegation that it was a chlorine gas cylinders which had caused these people to die. And there are various technical reasons for that, which we go into the detail in, in detail in the review. Um, as, as to why the conclusion was reached that they were not killed by chlorine gas. But that's effectively suppressed across reports and, and come the, the final IIT report in 2023 that they're manipulating and making very misleading claims in, in order to fudge that issue. So it, the burial of, of the original toxicology assessment and the failure to resolve the problems that were raised then about, look, it, it does not look so these people have been killed by chlorine, is, is a major uh, deception, I think, and obfuscation across the reports. Second broad area we, we look at across the reports is the role of witnesses and witness testimony. And again, you see um, across the reports a privileging of witnesses who claim the alleged attack occurred and a downgrading. And actually come the IIT report in 2023, uh, really a complete removal of a whole category of witnesses who were stating that they were not aware of any chemical attack. So you've got a, a very sort of biased use of witness testimony and suppression of witnesses who were claiming uh, or indicating the attack had not occurred as alleged. Third key area is, is, is the chemistry and the chemical analysis, trying to identify whether chlorine was there. And with respect to that issue, you see essentially a systematic attempt to exaggerate and overinterpret, overclaim the evidence for chlorine gas release. 
Uh, you see it right at the beginning with the switching of the original interim report. And you see it in the IIT report, which came out in 2023, as, as you have written about, where they have uh, taken material and evidence and essentially overinterpreted, overclaimed, spun it in order to uh, make stronger claims than, than they're actually able to with respect to the evidence for chlorine gas release. And finally, is the, as many people, this seems to be the more sort of widely um, understood issue in some ways, but the issue of the cylinders, um, which are supposed to have released the chlorine gas, the idea that these were dropped from helicopters and impacted roofs, and then um, one is supposed to have gone through a metal bar reinforced roof, and the other is supposed to have um, punched a hole in that roof, and then um, sort of balanced itself over the hole and leaked chlorine gas. And there's been a persistent issue raised in the original report, which was switched, that the damage on the cylinders is not compatible with the damage you see on the roofs. And in some way, this is a, a little bit of a smoking gun, because if the cylinders weren't dropped from a helicopter, then the attack did not occur as alleged. And if these cylinders had uh, done the damage they're supposed to have done, um, there would be much more um, damage on the cylinders themselves, um, you know, equal opposite um, forces and so on. And what you see across all of the um, subsequent uh, OPCW reports is actually a fudging of the evidence or the issue of how do we understand the lack of damage on the cylinders compared to the damage on the roof. And one of the standout things for me uh, when I was looking at the reports was that when you look at the computer-generated imagery, uh, finite, finite element analysis um, details of the cylinders, it's almost sort of blurred into an indistinct um, sort of uh, picture where you can't actually see what supposedly the steel bars are doing to the, the, the head of the cylinder at location two. So they're, 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 they're fudging that and in quite a blatant way. And come the final IIT report, they pretty much sidestep that entire issue. Um, spend about half of the report talking about how the cylinders tumbled through the air, air in various ways or how they might have done, um, but evade entirely this central issue which had been there from the start that, look, as people can see in the report and, and in, in the visuals which we put into the report or the review, um, the, the damage doesn't really match up and they haven't been able to resolve that. So, you know, across these areas which are all essentially fundamental to underpinning their overall conclusion uh, that there are reasonable grounds the alleged attack happened. There's so much obfuscation and essentially deception across those areas that that claim that they put forward at the end isn't really tenable when you actually look at you know, how this information has been censored and manipulated. If it was allowed, as it were, into the discourse of the report, you wouldn't be able to stand up that final conclusion. You'd probably be coming to very different conclusions that something else had happened as was set out in the original interim report that perhaps an attack occurred, but perhaps something else has happened. So I think those are the standout. And, um, you know, although these are technical detailed issues, these aren't beyond uh, the ability of most people to understand if they take the time to read the report. And also for scientists and other engineers, which I would take this opportunity to call upon scientists and engineers, as well as academics to really scrutinize this material 
go back to the reports as well, which are available in the public domain, and really consider, okay, is this really rigorous science? Is this really rigorous research and analysis going on here? Because uh, to us and BG21, it's clear that that is not the case. Um, but yeah. All the information is there for people to look at and scrutinize, and, and I would encourage other experts to start to do that now. And also, and the reason why this matters, it. the reason why this matters is because fundamentally we're talking about murder. There are dozens of bodies that are filmed dead here, and if they were not killed in a chemical attack by the Syrian government, as was alleged, uh, but as is contradicted by all the available evidence, then they were killed in some other way. And this is not just about accountability for an international organization and geopolitics, all that's very important. Fundamentally, this is about the murder of innocent people, which remains unsolved by the suppression of all of this evidence. And just a few points I wanted to make on it. Um, on the toxicology that you mentioned, these German toxicologists, the first ones consulted by the OPCW in June 2018, they ruled that the victim's symptoms are inconsistent with chlorine gas. And as you mentioned, not only are their conclusions censored, completely omitted from all the published OPCW reports, even the fact that they were consulted it's censored. So the OPCW has a timeline at the end of the final report put out in March 2019 of all the activity they did during the uh, investigation. And that key June meeting where the these four expert German toxicologists ruled out chlorine gas as the cause of death, that meeting itself is completely omitted. And then we get uh, uh, told that there are more meetings with additional toxicologists after that. But the OPCW never tells us what they actually concluded. All they say was that they couldn't reach a conclusion as to whether or not the chlorine was linked to the death of the victims. They don't say what they actually found as to whether or not the victim's symptoms are consistent. So they completely obscure this key issue. And they also obscure the fact that, and this came out from leaked documents, that one of the German toxicologists initially consulted even raised the possibility that this murder was staged because of the inconsistency of the victim's symptoms with chlorine gas. That came out in the leaked minutes of their meeting. And yes, when it comes to the witnesses, as you mentioned, completely sidelining the accounts of witnesses who stayed behind in Syria, privileging the accounts of, witness, of alleged witnesses who were interviewed in Turkey. And these witnesses were provided by groups like the White Helmets, which were implicated in the Duma uh, incident and are funded by belligerents in the dirty war in, on Syria, in, in Syria and are allies of sectarian insurgents in Syria. And the OPCW privileged not only their accounts, but also overlooked the inconsistencies in their accounts, including people who said that there were dozens of bodies inside the basement, even though there was never any evidence of that whatsoever. So, I mean, there's so many glaring acts of inconsistencies and things that stand out as obvious red flags, but all this gets, gets obscured. And so, um, and your report, again, is the most comprehensive effort to address all that to date. I, I just add for sure, when you go with, through the reports with a fine-tooth comb, it throws up so many issues, uh, some of which you've just been describing in terms of inconsistencies in witness testimony and so on. And you know, I would go back to your the original point you started on, that you know we can see this, and, and I'm sure Hans will talk about this, You know, we can see this in terms of this issue is important because we're talking about an organization which is supposed to be there to help contribute to international peace and security, but it's been subverted, uh, I think, by Western interests. 
So there's this kind of broad geopolitical issue and, and the politics of all this. But at the heart of this, as you say, there are 43 plus civilians, women and children, um, who were photographed and filmed, and, and that's all up on, on, on the internet. And these people died under circumstances that we do not know for sure what happened to them. Um, we're very confident they weren't killed in a chlorine gas attack, obviously. And that really speaks to the importance of you know, ultimately a proper criminal investigation of some shape or form into what happened to them because these people died somehow and we need to establish, if only for justice for them, um, exactly what happened and who was responsible um, for their death. So that's at the core of this. This is a very serious issue from that kind of personal war crimes point of view. Um, absolutely. Hans von Sponek, you are a veteran diplomat, a former UN Assistant Secretary General, and also the former UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Iraq. Why have you gotten involved uh, in this controversy over Duma? Well, fundamentally because it has something to do uh, with the geopolitics in which um, the Duma case is so deeply embedded. Um, let, let me also say that what we have just heard from peers and to which you are on added is uh, really fundamental on one hand fundamental for the understanding of opcw's involvement in uh, in uh, uh, duma um why it is so important it has to do with the fact that it is without doubt i heard you talking about murder and 43 dead um, for, for that reason alone it is a um, a standalone case that had to be reviewed by the bg21 in as much detail as possible uh, if for no other reason than to to uncover the tampering with facts the manipulation and the censorship to which uh, you you have referred that had taken place and is uh, continuing to take place in The Hague. However, I, I must uh, emphasize that for me, uh, there is another dimension here to this case, which has to do with what I would call uh, systemic, systemic geopolitics, the misuse of power and the violation of international law. Our group, the BG21, has devoted as you know, two long years to review the Duma data at these two levels. I would say our objective, or better, our concern has nothing to do with partisanship or ideology, but everything with the protection of the independence of scientific research and the integrity of an institution such as the OPCW, as a much needed, who can question it, multilateral body that is answerable to whom? To governments, yes, all governments, however, and ultimately to people, to civil society. I've referred to systemic geopolitics. I want to stress that the OPCW has clearly become a victim, a victim of West-centric governmental interventions. Duma must therefore be added to the list of similar 
previous interventions as those in Libya, Afghanistan, Yemen, and of course Iraq, where I represented the UN during years of multilateral sanctions and could witness firsthand the harm of such policies for innocent people. I assume that former British ambassador Peter Ford would agree with these observations since he held similar views when he gave this incredible interview in Manchester in 2021 in which he used uncompromising, uncompromising language when he pointed out that, and I quote, an incredible quote, OPCW is corrupted and unable to play an impartial role, he said. And he concluded that the OPCW was a mere puppet of Western powers. I think one couldn't make that point more, more clearly. If you would like me to, I could uh, make say a few words about BG21. We have referred Please. to it several yeah. times. And uh, one should uh, know who is that BG21. And I want to start by saying here are four people, four individuals, a Brazilian, a British, an American, and a German, who uh, don't ask me how it happened, but it happened, got together uh, to work together. And one is the Brazilian ambassador, Jose Bustani, the first, incredible that he's part of the group, but he's the first director general of the OPCW. As we know, there is an eminent, well-known in your country and also here in Europe, uh, Professor Emeritus of Princeton University, Professor Falk, Richard Falk. And then there is uh, Pierce and I, uh, who worked uh, these last few years in the trenches, as far as Duma, Duma is concerned. Uh, the BG21 report, it was already mentioned, is commissioned or was commissioned by two European Union members of parliament and is the result of really of these two years of very deep and distinct research and consultation. Let me say here also that even before, even before the report was published in May 2023 and later when BG21 had distributed the report to all 193 UN member states, we faced our own individually and collectively smears, insults and defamation from whom? from people in high office. We also had to deal with unexplainable IT obstacles. Let me not go into details. I'm not competent to do that, but there were problems that we certainly can ascribe to uh, uh, an anon let it be an anonymous uh, source. We were not, we were not surprised. It confirmed that our report had something to say, which in some quarters was clearly not wanted to be heard. As it questioned unilateralist exceptionalism, two uh, mystic words here, we can talk about it, and therefore had to be attacked in every way possible. 
Ambassador Bustani was blocked from making a Duma presentation at the UN Security Council, as you know, for allegedly having no up-to-date knowledge about recent OPCW developments. That's pre preposterous, absolutely preposterous. One of us received a message that his association with Duma had destroyed his life work. Can you imagine that? As a group, we were told by an ambassador that we, as a group, throw mud at people in the hope that it sticks. Prestigious academic institutions, Pierce has referred to it already, disinvited us. It was new for me. I'd never been disinvited. I'd sometimes not been invited where I'd hoped I would be invited, but I wasn't. <laughs> anyway, one of us was told that the justification for this disinvitation was the need, hard to say, hard to believe, but I'm quoting here what I received in writing, to strike a balance between the political and the academic dimension. Unbelievable. What, what does that mean? So basically, uh, what that means like, is like broker, like broker some sort of settlement with the facts. So don't, don't be fully, uh, uh, but like, don't be fully supportive of acknowledging facts about Duma because you have to acknowledge the political reality. What it means to 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 me, how I interpret it is is that um, science, the independence of science, stood at the same level as ideology and politics, hmm. Hmm. and um, we are at this very moment. Not me, an initiative from within Germany, professors who are getting together now to try and relay their outcry, their, their anger to the president of that particular institution that allowed such a statement uh, about equality of politics and uh, science uh, to, uh, to, 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 to make. Um, but it is. Let me continue to give you a flavor of what the four of us have faced in this time trying to prepare an honorable and credible report. The BG21 was accused of cooperating with Russia. And there were, and we were defending the authoritarian regime of Bashar al-Assad. All to me and to Pierce, no doubt, incomprehensible, deeply offensive, and, and of course, also hurtful. The four of us are, have feelings also. So we are grateful, however, that on the other hand, there are voices, especially of people who are tired. Many people are increasingly tired of being exploited, who hear they are political leaders and know that their words are contradicting the acts of execution and do so, and that's important to remember, do so with impunity. People with whom we discuss OPCW and Duma, well, they wish us success. We may not succeed. We may indeed not succeed, but I can assure you we will prevail with our efforts to convince governments, NGOs, influential men and women, youth, young people, that ultimately 
justice will be done for Duma. Um, I had as one of my points that Pierce and I agreed uh, I should raise is another issue. But if I talk too much, tell me to shut up and I will not. But well, I can me, spend yeah. a few moments about what next for BG21. Well, before we get to that, let's talk a bit more about the response to the BG21. So there also was this incident a few years ago now where you organized a statement of concern calling on the OPCW to simply meet with the dissenting inspectors and all of the original members of the Duma team to let them weigh in and let the evidence that was suppressed be weighed just as part of any normal scientific process. And uh, this statement was signed not just by former OPCW Director General Jose Bustani, the founding Director General, but also four other former OPCW officials. So you have five former OPC senior officials from the OPCW calling on the organization, along with many other eminent figures around the world, uh, to address this controversy. And you sent that statement in a letter to the Director General uh, Arias of the OPCW. What did you get back in response? Silence. Uh, but worse than that, an unopened envelope. An envelope addressed to him, signed by his office, not opened and returned. That was the response from The Hague. And as you know, uh, <laughs> silence was also, is also the word that describes what we heard from the organization that had an oversight responsibility for what was happening in OPCW, and that is the United Nations itself. Not a word from the president of the General Assembly, the president of the Security Council, the president of the Human Rights Commission in Geneva, the uh, Undersecretary General uh, responsible for disarmament. Uh, no one has sent us a single word of substance in response to what we had tried to do in a very personalized way. These were not just uh, photocopies that we passed on to senior officials. These were personalized letters pleading with them to respond and to advise us and to guide us, to help us to defend the truth. If, if, if I could, could come in there, I mean, th there are broadly being two responses to not just BG 221, to anyone raising questions about the Duma incident. And one, one tactic, one strand has been to simply smear people um, very aggressively in some cases, um, but also certainly at the official level to spin these words such as uh, disinformation and so on. This is disinformation. And this is all, you know, part of ad hominem attacks. It's all part of playing, playing the man, not playing the ball. And it's a way of not engaging with the facts. And, and that's been one battle, as, as Hans has been describing, that all of us have had to deal with. The, the second part of this is, as Hans says, is just silence. So when you do provide detailed and authoritative material to um, people in positions of power, they're not capable of responding to it. 
uh, they can't engage with the facts and so on. So it's a combination of smearing and silence. And this has been going on for a very long time now. And I think we're at the point where it demonstrates that um, there certainly are issues which um, it can clearly be shown uh, that the OPCW report FFM investigation was flawed and they just can't provide an answer to that. So they're avoiding it or other people are coming in and smearing people are asking the questions. But all of it is, is thoroughly unscientific, uh, unobjective, and really, as, as Hans was suggesting, reveals the, the politics behind all of this. Um, that this is a, a big, major geopolitical issue, and America, France, and Britain in particular um, are using all of their might and all of their influence in order to try and sit on and squash the issues, which ultimately, of course, have emerged from within the, their own organization. And I suppose the, the other point to make, is, as, as Hans says, that the, the, the actual basic calls made are eminently reasonable, saying that, okay, if you have an investigation team and a significant proportion of that investigation team are blowing the whistle, saying it's gone wrong, the objective thing to do for an organization is to say, well, okay, let's get everybody together and let's go through the material. Perfectly reasonable, perfectly, uh, that would be the rational thing to do. Um, but they're obviously, you know, they, they do not want to do that because they do not want, I guess, the truth of what happened during the investigation and also the truth of what happened in Duma to actually finally emerge. And it's at this point, five years in, it's pretty blatant um, or pretty obvious what's going on. I would, I would add to this that in the case of the UN, it is a violation of the terms of appointment. You cannot be silent when your, your, your mission is your responsibility in the case of the Secretary General and also the office holders in the General Assembly and the Security Council who simply disregard voices from the grassroots and at the same time argue in other circumstances that the United Nations is a people's organization. That's a completely uh, contradictory position they take. So uh, silence in The Hague is unfortunate, is serious, but the silence in a larger context in, of the United Nations uh, well, creates for me the feeling that we have no one in the multilateral system that really defends truth and uh, the, the, the importance of international law uh, as far, at least as far as uh, the Duma investigation is concerned. And let's talk just a little bit more about Jose Bustani and what happened when he tried to go speak before the United Nations. We're talking about the founding director general of the OPCW. This is the, the first chief of the organization. He oversaw the implementation of the OPCW's uh, basic protocols. He launched the organization. And the dissenting inspectors on the Duma probe, they're so experienced with the OPCW that their tenure coincides with Bustani's. They worked together more than two decades ago when the organization was first founded because these two inspectors who dissented on Duma are that experienced. So Bustani goes to try to speak before the UN Security Council to share his expertise um, and to defend his former colleagues at the OPCW who are now being smeared and silenced and who are not being listened to. And what happens? The 
UK and US and France lead a contingent to block him from speaking. And we covered this at the Gray Zone. We aired actually the speech he was not allowed to give. But that was an extraordinary act of censorship. I had never seen anything like that before. A former chief of, a, of, an, organi- of an international organization not being allowed to speak about cover-up allegations at, a, at its organization in front of the UN. And Bustani has a history of being silenced by Western powers because he was ousted from his position as the first OPCW chief by the Bush administration because he stood up to the Iraq war. And there's a famous story where John Bolton came over and told Bustani that he needed to stand down uh, and, and resign because Bustani was basically trying to get Iraq into the Chemical Weapons Convention. And if that had happened, that would have undermined the Bush administration's case for invading Iraq. So Bolton threatened Bustani and even said to him, we know where your kids live. And Bustani famously did not back down. And so Bolton maneuvered behind the scenes to pressure enough countries to vote for his ouster. And ultimately that succeeded. So fast forward to now, Bustani is being silenced again. And there's a new film about Jose Bustani. It's called The Symphony for a Common Man. And I want to show a clip of that now because this film deals not only with that story of Bustani standing up to John Bolton and going through that uh, awful ordeal over Iraq, but also now it follows him as he now tries to stand up for accountability at the OPCW over the Duma scandal. Those in favor, three. Those against, six. Those abstaining, six. Uh, the decision is not adopted. Que hoje em dia, diante do que está acontecendo, as evoluções e tal da situação internacional de hoje, eu devo confessar que há uma certa decepção e um certo desânimo da minha parte. Eu não posso negar que isso aconteça. Isso é fato. Mas de qualquer maneira, eu acho que você tem que continuar tentando. Se minha voz vai ser ouvida, melhor. Se não for ouvida, eu não posso dizer mais nada, mas eu pelo menos tentei. So that's a clip from the new documentary, A Symphony for a Common Man, about founding OPCW Director General and BG21 member Jose Bustani. Hans von Sponek, when Bustani was censored at the UN, when he was not allowed to speak at the UN Security Council, what was your reaction? Well, my reaction was that um, I'm not surprised that three prominent members of the Security Council try to do that. But isn't it equally shocking and surprising that the other 12 members of the Security Council did not leave the room when that was proposed, that the two other permanent members, China and Russia, should have simply walked out, should have said that cannot happen in our case. We are a people's organization, a global organization, where every voice has a right to be heard and to make it worse. The voice that was willing to be heard <laughs> was blocked. But um, to answer your question in a, in a maybe better way, uh, it didn't ultimately surprise me because my predecessor in Baghdad, Dennis Holliday and myself, both at the request of the French uh, uh, government at the time that had a very different position on this on, on, on these issues, um, had wanted to wanted us to come, and uh, we were told in writing 
that uh, there was no need for us to come because we had only experience in one country under sanctions and therefore we couldn't contribute to the debate. Very similar language, by the way, to what uh, how uh, Bustani's rejection was justified by the three uh, prominent Western prominent members. And Piers Robinson, you were talking earlier about how any effort to address this con this controversy is just dismissed as disinformation. So I want to give an example of that because this is a very typical tactic we're seeing now, where if you read media accounts of the Duma controversy, there is so much effort to obscure the basic details. If you read most Western media accounts now about Duma, they won't even mention the fact that these investigators who went to Syria for this mission, including one who wrote the original report, have come forward to say that their investigation was compromised, was censored, that you're not even allowed to acknowledge that in many Western media outlets. So for example, after the IIT report of earlier this year from the OPCW that formally blamed the Syrian government, if you look at all the Western media accounts, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, um, the BBC, none of them mentioned the, the Duma censorship controversy, none of them. You would not know reading these articles that there was a serious cover-up controversy about this investigation at the OPCW. You would not know that these whistleblowers exist. You would not know that all these leaks showing the censorship exist. It's, it's erased. But what you do have, though, is this effort to um, taint any sort of criticism and to sort of tacitly attack the whistleblowers and those who defend them by uh, dismissing any criticism of the official narrative as disinformation. So let me give an example from the Washington Post. This is how the Washington Post reported this IIT report about Duma earlier this year. Uh, and they said this. The Duma attack swiftly became part of a disinformation campaign by the Russian state and a number of high-profile online activists. In lengthy blog posts and in podcasts, they claimed the evidence was fabricated, the corpses were arranged at the site, and that children seen foaming at the mouth were faking their symptoms. The OPCW's IIT report dismissed those theories one by one, providing extensive refutations in each case. So that's what's a very typical- that? What's the date for that? This was from right after the IIT report came out. So that, that, that would be in January 2023. Um, and this is from one of the writers on this is named Joby Warwick, who wrote an entire book called Redline about the issue of Syria and chemical weapons. And he stops his book right at the Duma incident so he can avoid telling readers what came afterwards, which is that <laughs> OPCW investigators accuse officials of a cover-up and a whole bunch of leaks back them up. So Joby Warwick, this Washington Post reporter, has never once mentioned the OPCW Duma controversy. And to the extent he acknowledges it at all, he dismisses it all as Russian disinformation. But let's talk about what he's saying there. Because first of all, he's saying that uh, people who criticize this probe claim that the children seen foaming at the mouth were faking their symptoms. Nobody alleges that. The issue is that these symptoms do not match exposure to chlorine. And if Joby Warwick and the Washington Post were willing to acknowledge what these censored toxicologists ruled, then they would know that. So instead, they're obscuring ex even what, what the criticism is. Uh, and when he talks about the corpses being arranged at the site, 
The first person I believe to point that out was a BBC reporter named Riam Delati, who just pointed out that in photographs of the scene, the corpses were being taken and put in different places and basically arranged for dramatic purposes. That was an observation from the BBC's Riam Delati, not from uh, bloggers or, or activists. And uh, it's obvious from the photos that some of the bodies are being uh, repositioned for, uh, you know, to make the scene. Like there's a scene, for example, of two people hugging, you know, to give this sort of uh, like dramatic flair to this awful scene. Um, so that's just documented from the pictures. But Pierre, I'm wondering, you know, hearing this, hearing this summary of uh, the Duma controversy for the Washington Post and, and dismissing this as some sort of disinformation campaign by the Russian state, not acknowledging the basic facts that there was a allegations of a cover up inside the OPCW. What, what, what is your response? Well, I mean, this is the normal tactic. They, they misrepresent the arguments being made. Um, they distort, they create straw man arguments, which can be knocked down, which you can see going on there. And then they, they ignore, and you're absolutely right to point out, they ignore that what is at the core of, of the OPCW Duma controversy, which is scientists from within the organization involved in the investigation, identifying you know, very clear procedural and scientific issues. And of course, they don't mention that because as soon as that's br brought into the frame, it would make their readers um, say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you're talking about a Russian disinformation campaign, you're talking about um, conspiracy theories and disinformation, etc. But there are actually people involved in the investigation who are, are speaking out. And that would completely undermine the, the narrative that they're trying to promote. And so they always, they always avoid, they nearly always avoid dealing or recognizing the fact that there are scientists within the organization and others who have um, blown the whistle effectively. And, you know, just from my own experience in the summer with the American Political Science Association, where there was an attempt to have me deplatformed, which fortunately failed. Um, but the uh, academic who, who was uh, trying to lobby panelists and APSA, the American Political Science Association, to deplatform me, was talking about war crimes, denial, disinformation, activism, and so on. But the one thing he didn't mention uh, was the OPCW whistleblowers, because it's an inconvenient factual, uh, it's an inconvenient fact, an inconvenient truth, which, you know, if it's, if it's properly communicated to a wider public, people will realize that there's a problem here. Obviously, there's a problem when very senior inspectors uh, call out fraud and deception on the part of the OPCW. And it's, it's a crude tactic, but it works. Um, you, you avoid the core facts of the issue, which would make people understand that something had gone wrong. And you just engage in misrepresenting people. And then as we see across multiple realms or spheres of activity now, the term disinformation is used to um, close people down. And we've seen, yeah, we've seen that across the board. We have, of course, we have the whole uh, censorship industrial complex, as Matt Taibbi describes it. And that's based upon the concept of disinformation and labeling information, which is dis, mal, or misinformation, and then having that removed. Um, and it's ultimately a, a tool of censorship, and it's a way for powerful actors to try and close down debate. You label it disinformation, get it off the mainstream media, get it out of social media, etc., through whatever means possible, and then you stop people essentially 
asking challenging questions. Um, and that unfortunately is the is the crazy world that we're living in, um, that those accusations can be leveled and they actually gain some traction. Um, you know, people think, oh, well, that's just disinformation. He's a disinformation activist, etc." Used to be the term conspiracy theory used to perform that function, but now disinformation label has, has taken over. Um, but, you know, as with all of this, this is for anybody um, looking at this objectively, and as Hans suggests, perhaps we will not see the truth fully coming out and being recognized in, in the short term. But in the long term, when people come back and sit and look at all of this information, look at the BG21 review, look at your work, look at other people's work, they'll be able to look at it calmly and objectively, and they'll be able to see what happened in this case even if at the moment it's buried under these accusations of disinformation and so on. Um, yeah, I had my own brush with this disinformation smear tactic when The Guardian came out with this article labeling me the most prolific spreader of disinformation on Syria. There's a few problems with that. They didn't give a single example of my alleged disinformation. And their lone source was a report put up by a group called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and the Syrian Campaign. And The Guardian didn't mention that the Institute for Strategic Dialogue is a NATO state-funded think tank funded by all different uh, NATO governments. And that report itself also doesn't give a single example of my alleged disinformation, doesn't even assert I've ever said anything false. And when I tried to get The Guardian to publish my reply, because of course they didn't contact me prior to publishing this, they worked very, very hard to erase any mention of the OPCW leak. So, they didn't contact me before publishing this. And when they agreed to then publish my reply much after the fact, after the damage was done, I went through this long back and forth process where they really tried very, very hard to not let me even mention the existence of the OPCW leaks. It was like extracting teeth. And finally, they had to let me mention it because in the process of publishing my reply, they made an error. So, and because they made an error, it forced them to actually finally let me just mention the OPCW leaks. But that to me was a window into how like the tactic of, of dismissing people who look at the facts of this case as pushing disinformation uh, and also how hard they try to not even let the existence of the OPCW controversy be acknowledged. Because as you said, Piers, once you acknowledge the fact that this controversy exists, that forces people to look into it. And when you look into it, the facts are overwhelming. This is There's documented censorship. You cannot contest that. And all the actual evidence that was suppressed raises serious questions about the narrative that the OPCW put out, which is that the Syrian government was behind a chemical attack. All the evidence points to this, in fact, being staged on the ground. Um, so, but, but, you know, yeah. but you know, this is why it is so crucial that we don't give the impression that Duma is a unique exception. There is a pattern. And that pattern has to be brutally, clearly, transparently identified. Look at Afghanistan. Look at Yemen. Look at what I resigned for reasons that um, that Pierce has referred to in, in, in Baghdad, because disinformation was so rampant, misrepresentation was so rampant that a normal, um, halfway decent uh, UN official couldn't do his or her work anymore. So the pattern is so important in a wider context that uh, people begin to realize in governments and outside of governments that here is something which wasn't brewed once, 
the cocktail for for Duma is the same drink that we had to 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 we were forced to drink in in other crisis spots around the world. That's so important. Yeah, and and, and I would add to that, of course, that, that as well as this is part of a, a familiar pattern, essentially of the the co-optation of international organizations by Western powers and by the U.S. You know, we also have this is indicative of a pattern across the Syrian con conflict with alleged chemical weapons attacks. And this is why I called earlier for people to start looking more closely at previous alleged attacks. And of course, there's the, the big Guta 2013 mass casualty incident uh, and controversy about that has persisted over time, as, as, as you're fully aware. And what this what Duma is, is an insight into is essentially the way in which the evidence gathering and the investigation has been corrupted regarding the alleged chemical weapons attacks in Syria. And if uh, Duma is um, not as the American government claims it to be, then the question needs to be opened up about all of the other allegations. So what we're looking at just within the context of the Syrian conflict is potentially um, a very substantial deception, strategic deception operation, not entirely dissimilar to what we saw in, in the case of the Iraq war in, 2002, uh, in 2003, and a run-up to that with the allegations of, of being a current weapons of mass destruction threat and so on. Um, and, and, you know, this opens a can of worms. And, and that's another kind of reason, I guess, why they work so hard. As you as you correctly say, they deploy so much in terms of resources to just squash and flatten people asking questions because they're concerned about you know, how badly this will unravel for them, I think, in, in terms of the broader picture of the Syrian conflict and the entire um, Western involvement in that conflict since 2011. And on the case of Ghouta, we just got a new document released in that incident from Seymour Hirsch, uh, the investigative journalist who just put out a memo that was produced in June 2013, a few months before the Ghouta attack of August 2013. Uh, that was a sarin attack in Syria. And that was the attack where Obama was going to bomb Syria because he had laid down the so-called red line, but then he ultimately pulled back uh, and did not bomb. But uh, this memo published by Seymour Hersh shows that the Pentagon was warning that Nusra in Syria, the Al-Qaeda franchise, had a really advanced sarin program and was trying to acquire sarin. And sarin, of course, was the murder weapon in Ghouta, which was not told to the public. The public was not told that while the Obama administration was accusing Sy Sy the Syrian government of a sarin attack in Ghouta, that they're privately, the Pentagon was warning that Al-Qaeda was trying to acquire sarin. And which raises the question of what else were we not told about that incident? And it's a case of cherry picking, just like is happening in Duma, where the evidence in Duma was cherry picked to form a narrative and in some cases outright distorted. Uh, and that's what is now still left unaddressed, but is now thoroughly documented in this new report from the BG21. So Hans von Sponek, um, you wanted to talk about what is happening next with your group and your effort for accountability uh, over the Duma scandal? The obvious one is the government brought Brazil is, has been calling, as Pierce said, uh, for UN Security Council and OPCW state party um, agreement to include the report on their respective agenda. Well, I would say this has set a really profound example that should motivate other governments. I'm a bit 
I'm a bit surprised that at this stage, now the summer is over, that not more governments have come forward to say, hey, there is something in, in that report we need to, to pursue. And allow me to, my last point is a bit facetious, but I still want to make it. Um, whether you include it in the documentary is, is your decision, but let me say this. I, in my notes here, I, I wrote, uh, it really is not difficult to know in which laboratory the MSM virus, the mainstream media virus was produced preventing impartial reporting and discourse on, well, on geopolitical crisis, including Duma. We await news that a credible vaccine is becoming available to heal this patient media, so that mainstream media, especially in Europe, can become an ally for responsible reporting. But, you know, um, maybe off the record, but I, I want to, my last words, my last sentences have to do with the, the fact that uh, Jose Bustani, Richard Falk, Pierce Robertson, I, we know fully well our limitations, the BG21 limitations. But we also know that what we say and what we do with respect to Duma has absolutely no hidden agenda. and. My last word has to do with you, Aaron, with Max Blumenthal and the Gray Zone for your incredible struggle to keep a credible investigative journalism alive. That you, you want, I want you to hear that because that is really what we feel, which has encouraged us to move on. Thank you, Hans. I really appreciate that. Piers Robinson, let's close with you. Any final words for us? Um, no, I've got nothing really to add to that. I, I, I think, you know, at this, at this juncture, we are sort of waiting upon the Brazilian government, as we've already said. Uh, they have raised the issue at the UN Security Council on, on the 11th of June, and uh, eyes are on them, as well as on other governments to start to come forward, but certainly Brazil to, to follow through with the insistence that they delivered to the OPCW to respond to the points. And, um, you know, and I suppose the, the other thing, We've all been hit with a lot of smears and so on over, over the last five years. You know, I'm kind of hoping that at some point in all of this, when we you know we have all of the information down on paper in detail, that we can possibly start to move to a point towards um, having a rational, sensible dialogue with people rather than um, having mud thrown at us. Yeah, <laughs> if only. It, let me say on the on the Brazilian government angle of this, I was in the room at the UN Security Council when Brazil came out in favor of accountability for the Duma cover-up. Uh, it was during the session that I spoke at earlier this year about the IIT report. And I went through some of the major flaws with that report. And the video of that is up at, at, at the Gray Zone, and I'll link to it. But at that session, the Brazilian representative came out and said that, you know, there are serious issues here and they need to be addressed. And I can just say from being in the room, the Western diplomats, the US and UK especially, were not happy to hear that. And I don't think they were expecting it. But this is a, sh a shift that's happened under Lula uh, because Lula worked closely with Jose Bustani. Uh, Bustani was ousted from the OPCW during Lula's tenure. And then Lula appointed him as ambassador to the UK. So 
Lula, I'm sure, is very familiar with this case. And what you're seeing now is a country, a major country like Brazil, standing up in favor of accountability. And for people who followed the Duma scandal very closely, we've been covering it for a very long time now. Uh, that is one ray of light. That's one actual positive development where, for the first time, this major government, Brazil, is actually standing up for accountability. And that's something to be encouraged about. And we'll see where it leads. So we'll leave it there. Hans von Sponek and Piers Robinson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.